Welcome to Biz Help For You with host Candy Messer. Entrepreneurs like to focus on the big picture, like profitability, success, and a smooth running organization. There always seems to be those little things like taxes, employee compensation, laws, regulations, and more. Now you can get the answers you need in one place. Join us today as we break it all down for you. Now, here is your host, Candy Messer. Hello, and welcome to Biz Help for You with Candy Messer. I'm so glad you are joining us this week. I wanted to say thank you to those who reached out to me after last week's show and let me know how helpful you found the information. I want this show to be a resource for you with details you can use to have a successful business. If you are unable to join us and would like to listen to the episode, Business or Hobby, IRS Factors to Consider, it can be found on the right side of my page under the episode directory, which can be found on voiceamerica.com on the business channel. Or you can just search my name and the page will come up. If there are topics you'd find beneficial or questions you have, please feel free to reach out to me at media at abandp.com. So today I wanted to talk about the sales tax case, South Dakota versus Wayfair, what it means for businesses selling out of state. On June 21st, 2018, the Supreme Court announced its decision in the South Dakota versus Wayfair case one that granted states the right to tax out-of-state sellers for products sold within their borders. This ruling changed how businesses must tax sales to the out-of-area customers. States were prepared to assess new tax laws once the case was decided, and many have already implemented the changes. In the past, a business needed nexus to be considered operating in that state. This meant a physical location, such as a warehouse or storefront, or an employee or a salesperson located within the state. Online sellers rarely fell into this category, so they did not need to collect tax from clients residing outside of their state. This law has changed all of the rules regarding out-of-state sellers. Let's take a look at the original definition of nexus. Before a tax agency can require a seller from out of state to collect and remit sales tax, the company must have some type of connection with the state in which the sale occurs. The most widely accepted definition of nexus had been that the company had to have some type of physical connection to the state. In 1992, the Supreme Court case Quill versus North Dakota reaffirmed this definition stating that since there was not a real presence in the state when selling products through mail order catalogs, the responsibility of paying the tax fell on the customer by reporting it as use tax on their state income tax return. Use tax is the amount of tax that would have been charged on the purchase had the items been bought in their home state. But we all know that people do not report on their returns the amount of purchases subject to use tax. This means states lose the sales tax revenue to which they are entitled. According to a blog written by Ned Lenhart in 2016 called Economic Nexus Sales Tax Rules, How Did We Get Here? He states, quote, In Quill, 
the U.S. Supreme Court indicated that the solution to the issue rests with Congress and would require federal legislation to modify the Commerce Clause to permit states to tax out-of-state sellers that do not have a physical presence in their state. As remote commerce migrated from mail-order catalogs to e-commerce, the loss in sales tax revenue has mushroomed and is forcing states to make some short-term adjustments while they waited for Congress to act. This includes increasing sales tax rates, elimination of tax exemptions, and adjustments to income tax laws. It is now 24 years after Quill, and Congress is not remotely close to reaching a consensus about how to act. Unquote. He then goes on to say, quote, During this 24-year period, Numerous House and Senate bills around sales tax have been introduced and voted on, but comprehensive changes have never passed. The states are hemorrhaging tax revenue and are tired of waiting for Congress to act. Tensions are high and the states are acting unilaterally, unquote. One of the first states to push these alternative nexus theories was Ohio. In 2005, the state adopted the Factor Presence Test for purposes of determining what companies are subject to the Commercial Activity Tax, also known as CAT. Under this test, companies with no connection at all to Ohio are still subject to the CAT if they have sales in Ohio of at least $500,000. That's it. No need to have property or payroll in the state. Just sales. Following Ohio's lead, more states adopted the factor presence test, which is also known as economic nexus. Under this theory, a company is deemed to have nexus with the taxing state only if it has sales in the state. Under this test, there is no need to have any physical connection with the state. In short, under the various economic nexus tests, adopted by a handful of states, Quill is irrelevant and inapplicable, or so the states believed. In addition to the factor presence test adopted by Ohio, the state has also asserted a physical presence or a virtual presence test over certain companies because they transmit electronic cookies to Ohio users who access their website. Under this theory, Ohio could exert nexus over any e-commerce company, regardless of the sales volume. There had been no case that had overturned the physical presence nexus guidelines, nor any congressional action that had reversed the determination in the Quill versus North Dakota case until the ruling of South Dakota versus Wayfair in 2018, which became a game changer for the states. As Scott Peterson the Vice President of U.S. Tax Policy and Government Relations for Avalara says in an article posted on the CPA Practice Advisor blog in 2018, quote, online retailers that want to face the future with confidence and ensure their ability to focus on satisfying the needs of customers should immediately develop a reliable strategy for tracking evolving sales tax regulations assessing their impact on their businesses, and automating sales tax compliance. Once this law went into effect, 
California passed their own law regarding the collection of sales tax from the online stores and those selling to clients from out of state. As of April 1, 2019, any out-of-state seller must begin collecting sales tax if either apply. Sales in California exceed $100,000, or over 200 separate transactions and deliveries to customers have been made within a calendar year. There are the same, these are the same guidelines as the South Dakota versus Wayfair case set forth. If you're wondering why California's new sales tax threshold is the same as South Dakota, Scott Peterson said, there's a reason for that. The Supreme Court's Wayfair decision didn't provide a lot of guidance for states. Like most states, California is taking the safe position and adopting the same thresholds as South Dakota. Obviously, having the largest state make an announcement is a significant development, Peterson explains. Lots of sellers haven't had to take economic nexus too seriously because many of the current economic nexus states are small. Since California is the number one customer location for just about every national seller, this announcement will incentivize many more sellers to take this issue seriously. The past 20 years or so, the addition of the internet and online market has caused a great deal of confusion and disagreements when it comes to sales tax. Of course, online retailers do not wish for the added burden of state tax on purchases, but this is unfair to the brick and mortar retailers who must collect sales tax that the online retailers can easily avoid. It is estimated that states currently miss out on collecting 11 billion in revenues without charging sales tax for online sales. So naturally, most states are all for fairness in levying sales tax for in and out of state retailers. On the other hand, lawmakers certainly don't want the bad publicity that comes with raising or implementing new taxes. The state of New York has been at odds with online retailers like Amazon for many years and had passed a law in 2008 requiring online retailers to collect sales tax on purchases made by residents of the state. In 2013, a New York appeals court ruled that Amazon and most online retailers must collect state sales tax when they pay affiliates to promote links to their products. Affiliates are independent sites that link to a retailer in return for a commission. The appeals court wrote, quote, The bottom line is that if a vendor is paying New York residents to actively solicit business in this state, there is no reason why that vendor should not shoulder the appropriate tax burden, unquote. Amazon and Overstock would not be defeated and sought review by the Supreme Court claiming that the New York ruling provided a roadmap for other state legislatures to enact similar burdensome legislation. The case made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court in December 2013. And the court's ruling? They refused to hear Amazon and Overstock's case and upheld the New York ruling. According to a New York Times article on March 28, 2013, the struggle over Internet taxes had intensified in the few years leading up to the court case. Brick-and-mortar retailers had been increasingly insistent that Amazon, in particular, was unfairly avoiding its responsibility to make sure its customers paid sales tax. Other states began debating measures like New York's as well. 
New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman was satisfied with the ruling, saying that the Supreme Court decision validated New York's efforts to treat both online and brick-and-mortar retailers equally and fairly. In response, Amazon struck deals in California, New Jersey, and a few other states to build warehouses in exchange for finally agreeing to collect taxes. In states where it did not need warehouses, Amazon had refused to budge. The retailer said it supports a national solution rather than a state-by-state effort. By upholding the state ruling and not hearing Amazon in Overstock's case, pressure was being put on Congress to resolve the issue. In May 2012, the Senate passed the Marketplace Fairness Act to allow states to levy state and use taxes on out-of-state sellers. The bill, S. 1832, expressed the sense of Congress that states should be able to enforce their existing sales and use tax laws and to treat similar sales and transactions equally without regard to the manner in which the sale is transacted and to collect or decide not to collect taxes that are owed under state law. It authorizes each member state under the Streamlined Sales and Use Tax Agreement the multi-state agreement for the administration and collection of sales and use taxes adopted on November 12, 2002 to require all sellers not qualifying for a seller exception. Those are sellers with annual gross receipts in total of less than $500,000 to collect and remit sales and use taxes with respect to remote sales under provisions of the agreement. The law defines remote sales as goods or services attributed to a state with respect to which a seller does not have adequate physical presence to establish a nexus with the state. It looks like it's about time to take a break. When we come back, we'll look at the sales tax amnesty program that's been introduced and how states are finding the tax cheats. You're listening to BizHelp for You with Candy Messer on Voice America Internet Radio. We'll be right back after this brief commercial break. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you up late at night after a long day's work trying to do your bookkeeping? Are you frustrated with your lack of QuickBooks knowledge or feel you don't understand it at all? Do payroll tax calculations and reporting stress you out? Whether you're a sole proprietor or an officer of a corporation, Affordable Bookkeeping and Payroll Services is here to help. We work with overwhelmed entrepreneurs to remove the burden of bookkeeping and payroll tasks, giving them peace of mind and the freedom to do the parts of the business they love. Our bookkeeping clients include service-based businesses, such as medical offices, fast food restaurants, landscapers, and gyms. We also assist franchise owners to create the necessary reports to submit each month. We are a full-service payroll company, assisting clients of 1 to 120 employees. We offer full and self-service options. If you're ready to offload tasks that burden you, reach out to us today at 310-534-5577 or email contact at abandp.com. Call us today. Have peace of mind tonight. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. 
How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You are listening to BizHelp for You. If you have a question or comment about the show, send us an email to media at abnp.com. That's media at abandp.com. Now, back to BizHelp for You. Welcome back to BizHelp for You with Candy Messer. In the last segment, I was talking about the passage of the South Dakota versus Wayfair case and the impact it's had on online sellers shipping to clients out of their home state. And I had started talking about Congress and the bill they passed when we needed to take a break. So I want to just go back and cover a little bit um, of that again, just to make sure that that was clear, and then continue on with the information that I wanted to share with you today. So again, as I was saying, uh, basically, they were saying that Congress needed to get involved because the states were trying to do their own things. And so Congress did say in the bill 1832 uh, that states should be able to enforce their existing sales and use tax laws and to treat similar sales transactions equally. Uh, So they actually did maintain the right to tax as they had been doing. And again, it authorized each member state under the streamlined sales and use tax to administer and collect sales and use taxes uh, and require all sellers not qualifying for the small seller exception. Again, if they sold less than $500,000, they were considered a small seller. But anyone who did not uh, fall into that exception had to collect and remit sales and use taxes with respect to the remote sales under the provisions of the agreement. And again, the law defines a remote sale as a sale of goods or services attributed to a state with respect to which a seller does not have adequate physical presence to establish nexus with the state. This law allowed a state that is not a member state under the agreement to require sellers to collect and remit sales and use taxes with respect to remote sales if the state adopts and implements certain minimum simplification requirements, including, number one, providing a single state agency to administer all sales and use taxes. Number two, establishing a uniform sales and use tax base. Number three, relieving remote sellers from liability to the state or a locality for collection of the incorrect amount of sales or use tax based on information provided by the state. And number four, providing remote sellers 30 days notice 
of a tax rate change by any locality in the state. Many other states had similar laws as New York, but states would hesitate to levy taxes on online remote retailers since retailers will frequently stop supporting businesses in states with burdensome taxes. The New York State Court has noted, quote, the world has changed dramatically in the last two decades, and it may be that the physical presence test is outdated. An entity may now have a profound impact upon a foreign jurisdiction solely through its virtual projection via the Internet, unquote. In September 2017, I wrote a blog explaining information on the then-upcoming sales tax amnesty program that was going into effect, sharing details originally written by Scott Peterson, who is Vice President of U.S. Tax Policy and Government Relations at Avalara. In light of the fact that many businesses were not properly collecting and remitting sales tax for online purchases shipped to clients outside of their home state, a sales tax amnesty program was put into place from August 17th to November 1st, 2017. The Multi-State Tax Commission, also known as MTC, administered the amnesty program and is an intergovernmental state agency whose mission is to achieve fairness by promoting compliance and consistent tax policy and practice, and to preserve the sovereignty of state and local governments over their tax systems. There are various incentives used to encourage businesses to participate in the sales tax amnesty program. Number one, simplified compliance. Online marketplace sellers may not have a storefront in a specific state. However, by using a storage warehouse located within a state, leveraging a fulfillment agent, or having inventory in a fulfillment center, sellers most likely have a tax obligation or nexus to that state. With this proliferation of fulfillment centers has come uncertainty and confusion on the part of online sellers related to where products are shipping from and whether or to whom sales tax should be collected and remitted. An unregistered online seller with Nexus in a particular state was asked on the tax registration forms when their business began in that jurisdiction. Registering under the MTC Sales Tax Amnesty Program simplified compliance because accurate information was able to be shared without financial risk. Number two, Forgiveness of back taxes. Under the amnesty program, participating online sellers were not liable for back taxes in most cases. However, some states required a look back period and the remittance of back taxes due from that time. Number three, understanding the liability. In previous years, the newness of e-commerce and online marketplaces such as the Fulfillment by Amazon program, led to unclear statuses for online sellers and states with Amazon warehouses within their borders. However, numerous tax authorities determined that online sellers with goods stored in warehouses have nexus for the state in which the warehouse was located. Amazon's growing revenue from its Fulfillment by Amazon sellers 
$30 billion worldwide in 2016 had captured the attention of states, and as a result, many began pursuing taxes owed to them. So there are some considerations for enrollment and disclosure that was in the program. The first one was taxes moving forward. Businesses that registered during the amnesty program window would need to begin collecting sales tax starting December 1st, 2017. As registered businesses, they would regularly be required to meet the tax requirements of the states in which they registered. In addition, if a business grew its e-commerce presence in new regions, the business's nexus should be closely monitored to avoid compliance and back tax issues going forward. Taxes in multiple states. A seller's tax obligation is based on its presence in a state or nexus, and the threshold for when a presence results in a sales tax nexus differs from state to state. A nexus study can be conducted to determine where a taxpayer has nexus and must register to collect and remit sales tax. The presence of people, employees, service people, or independent sales or service agents, or property, inventory, offices, and warehouses create nexus. Consigned inventory, the designation Amazon uses for inventory in their fulfillment centers, creates temporary nexus at a minimum. If an online business had significant nexus with more than one state, those businesses could disclose multiple states throughout the amnesty program. An online seller with multi-state nexus that did not register through the amnesty program could face the risk to their finances down the road via back taxes, interest, and penalties from numerous states. Amazon will collect tax for third-party sellers, but only if the seller requests that service. Amazon charges a fee for this service, 2.9% of the sales tax collected. Sellers must still remit and report the tax collected themselves. So what if you miss the amnesty period and you're selling into other states and you meet the nexus requirements? It's imperative that you register and begin to collect tax based on the rules of the states in which you qualify. Even before the defining Supreme Court case that ruled businesses don't have to have a physical presence in a state to pay sales tax, it's always been the taxpayer's responsibility to both understand their sales tax duties and collect the correct amount. Ever since the South Dakota versus Wayfair ruling, both states and businesses across the nation have been scrambling to keep up with this ever-changing sales tax laws. It's high-pressure times, with retailers struggling to adjust to new requirements and states pursuing fresh avenues of enforcement. According to Gail Cole's article shared in the CPA Practice Advisors blog in March 2019, close to 30 states have passed laws requiring out-of-state sellers to tax their sales into the state. How do tax authorities know whether such businesses are collecting and remitting tax as they should? Perhaps the most effective and inventive method of detecting those who haven't registered and aren't paying the tax is the recent use of data mining software that looks at existing tax records on a business, along with past and current behaviors, 
to score and classify potential non-compliant companies. In some cases, even third-party data centers like credit unions are being sought out for the information they may hold on at the state of a business's sales. Among the states currently using analytics to find out-of-state sellers that aren't aware they owe tax or are shirking collection and remittance are New York, Ohio, Illinois, Oklahoma, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, Nevada, South Carolina, Alabama, Utah, and Wyoming have expressed that they're working to make analytics a bigger part of their plans. Data mining is a great tool for searching out tax cheats from the masses, but it doesn't accomplish everything. Often, there's nothing better than good old-fashioned boots on the ground, and lately, states have been sending out plenty of boots. Another blog on the Avalara website, written by Gail Cole, states tax authorities routinely send auditors to or hire auditors from other states to capture unreported sales and use tax revenue. Some states go so far as to have remote offices. For example, the Texas Comptroller has audit offices in Los Angeles, New York City, and Tulsa. California has field offices in Chicago, New York, and Houston. There are Missouri Department of Revenue offices near Chicago, Dallas, and New York, while Florida Department of Revenue has offices in Atlanta, Chicago, Dallas, Houston, Los Angeles, New York, and Pittsburgh. The Utah State Commission doesn't specify where all it has sales and use tax auditors, but notes that they spend a majority of their time at taxpayers' offices looking at detailed sales and purchase transactions and travel to locations all over the United States to perform their work. Many states have increased audits since the Great Recession, hiring new auditors as needed. New Mexico's Audit and Compliance Division has added approximately 62 full-time equivalent employees since the economy, economy plummeted. And in 2015, the Wisconsin Department of Revenue announced that it needed 102 additional auditors and 11 additional agents to help uncover what was estimated to be approximately $80 million in unpaid tax revenue. Many of the new hires are focusing on businesses based in other states. Long before economic nexus was considered grounds to collect sales tax, auditors have been coordinating with outside state officials to locate and enforce both out-of-state sellers and those within state lines who are suspected of owing taxes, with audit targets varying from high transaction companies to those with mismatched data to picking out a business at random. States will often send over auditors across borders to track down offenders, or alternatively, thanks to regional information sharing acts, communicate information surrounding any business with a high amount of sales in a certain state to that said state. Covering more ground by working as a unit, once a company is suspected of skimping on their sales taxes, for auditors, it's simply a matter of testing whether that's true by placing an order and watching to see if the correct amount of sales tax is charged. Bottom line, 
If you're unsure what you're supposed to be collecting for sales tax or simply haven't set up the necessary collection systems, don't wait. As challenging as it may be, and while some states do offer safe harbor thresholds for small businesses, the risk of a potential audit and accompanying penalties can be costly. In South Dakota versus Wayfair, small businesses were given an exemption from the collection and remittance of sales tax from out-of-state sellers. Their guidelines apply to sellers with more than $100,000 in sales or at least 200 sales in the state in the current or previous calendar year. All other states that have adopted economic nexus in the wake of the South Dakota versus Wayfair case also provide an exception for small sellers, though not all are the same as those revealed in the South Dakota case. Businesses selling to clients residing in other states need to know which states have remote seller sales tax laws and when those laws apply to them. If you are selling to clients in other states, it's important to closely monitor the activity. If or when sales surpass the threshold, you'll need to register with the appropriate tax authority and start collecting and remitting sales tax according to their local laws. This can be challenging. Not only do states have different thresholds, but they include different sales in the threshold test. Some include all sales into the state, both taxable and exempt. Some include only taxable sales of intangible personal property. Others include intangible property and or services. When talking to a friend about this topic I was going to share, she asked a few questions about when it would apply. Although she doesn't yet have a business, she does have an interest in being an entrepreneur one day. I explained the situations in which sales tax would need to be collected. Her statement to me was that it's a lot of work to track how much revenue or the number of sales that have been made into each state and wondered if marketing should be limited so as not to go over the threshold before having to register to collect and remit tax. A business owner would have to determine if the cost and effort of tracking the information is worth the profit generated from selling into those states. If margins are slim on products sold, it may not be worth selling in those states. An analysis of your sales and expenses per location may need to be done to determine your margin and see if the time required to manage the reporting is worth the cost. Registering for an account. If you find you should be registered for a sales tax account, it's important to do so quickly And when you do, you'll want to be aware of information you may need to present and why. For a lot of people, when it comes to filling out forms, official or otherwise, many leave the box for their social security number empty, and understandably so. It can be scary entrusting your identity to anyone, not to mention a government system that is sure to have your information pass through a lot of hands. And with identity theft on the rise, the desire to not share this information is high. However, when it comes to sales tax, often the request for your social security number isn't just a formality. Many state and local tax, abbreviated SALT, jurisdictions require proof of identity in the form of a driver's license or social security number before being able to issue a sales tax license. And if you're not registered to collect sales tax, Not only is it illegal to charge taxes without a permit, 
but not fulfilling your sales tax requirements at all can lead to heavy penalties. My advice? Before choosing to provide your social security number or leave it blank, simply ask if it's necessary first. Whenever a business or an individual collects sales tax, they're essentially agreeing to act as a trustee until the money can be appropriately distributed to sales tax authorities. The tax collected does not belong to the company or the individual, nor is it simply the company's problem to handle the appropriation of funds. While the question of who's the liable trustee differs by state, usually whoever's personal information and social security numbers on file for sales tax licensing is seen as the one responsible for ensuring the states receive the tax collected. With this in mind, it's perfectly legal for taxing jurisdictions to require your social security number if they need it. Florida, for example, requires the owner's social security number for sales tax registration, unless they're part of a corporation, business trust, non-business trust, Native American tribe, or a state, whereas Texas often requires the social security number of every corporate officer and director. Before simply assuming, take the time to search your state sales tax requirements and liability rules to protect both yourself and your company. Perhaps the best way to keep your business on the up and up is to simply practice good habits within your company systems. Little things like paying your sales tax due on time, asking questions, reviewing contracts, state laws, and shareholder agreements to determine liability, properly training employees on sales tax obligations, and consulting with your tax professional often to stay up to date on new requirements can help protect a business from a mountain of fees and stress down the road. Don't wait and don't just assume. Educate yourself and your employees on proper sales tax collection and remittance. And it looks like it's about time to take another quick break. Be sure to hang around to hear more information on sales tax, including a discussion on the taxability of digital products. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you up late at night after a long day's work trying to do your bookkeeping? Are you frustrated with your lack of QuickBooks knowledge or feel you don't understand it at all? Do payroll tax calculations and reporting stress you out? Whether you're a sole proprietor or an officer of a corporation, Affordable Bookkeeping and Payroll Services is here to help. We work with overwhelmed entrepreneurs to remove the burden of bookkeeping and payroll tasks, giving them peace of mind and the freedom to do the parts of the business they love. Our bookkeeping clients include service-based businesses, such as medical offices, fast food restaurants, landscapers, and gyms. We also assist franchise owners to create the necessary reports to submit each month. We are a full-service payroll company, assisting clients of 1 to 120 employees. We offer full and self-service options. If you're ready to offload tasks that burden you, reach out to us today at 310-534-5577 or email contact at abandp.com. Call us today. Have peace of mind tonight. If you are interested in the business of rental equipment, be sure to check out Rental Equip Talk Radio with host Donald Charbonnet. We talk to some of the top names in the rental industry, as well as cover topics that include safety, training, 
fleet management, legal issues, and more. We'll also cover the history and future of the rental equipment industry. Rental Equip Talk Radio can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to BizHelp for You. If you have a question or comment about the show, send us an email to media at abnp.com. That's media at abandp.com. Now, back to BizHelp for You. Welcome back to BizHelp for You with Candy Messer. In the last segment, we discussed how states are finding those who aren't paying sales tax as they should. Are there any questions? You can call in at 866 866- 472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. In the meantime, let's look at surviving a sales tax audit. No one likes to hear the word audit. It often strikes fear in those who hear this word uttered. Unfortunately, it can't be guaranteed you won't be audited for sales and use tax. States need sales and use tax revenue to fund essential services and tax authorities are tasked with ensuring businesses collect and remit the taxes they owe. What you can do is institute best practices, avoid common audit triggers, and position yourself to sail through an audit as painlessly as possible. Gail Cole shared information on how to survive a sales tax audit in a 2018 CPA Practice Advisor article. Although any business can be audited at any time, certain industries are more vulnerable to audits than others because of how sales and use tax regulations impact their business. In fact, more than half of all audits in the United States target just a handful of industries, construction, food service, manufacturing, retail, and wholesale distribution. In addition, Auditors often focus efforts on businesses with a high volume of exempt transactions. Specific events, such as a late filing or a dramatic change in taxable or exempt sales year over year, can also draw an auditor's eye. Perhaps most surprisingly, many audits are aimed at out-of-state companies with ties to the state. The more you institute best practices, the less likely you'll raise the red flags auditors seek. There's no one reason businesses are found liable. However, different businesses are prone to different errors, and auditors tend to scrutinize these areas. For example, retailers that sell to consumers in multiple states may not collect and remit tax wherever they have nexus. Companies that sell to nonprofit entities may not properly charge those entities tax as required. Not all nonprofits are entitled to a sales tax exemption on all purchases. And then there's use tax. Businesses across all industries often fail to remit use tax on taxable items purchased tax-free from vendors in other states, or 
items taken from inventory for business or personal use. In fact, in South Dakota, use tax errors account for seven out of the top 10 errors found during audits. Understanding exemptions, use tax obligations, and where you have an obligation to collect and remit sales tax puts you in a strong position to weather an audit should one occur. And if audits are universally dreaded, and they are, it's because they cost businesses time and money. It's not unusual for an audit of a small or mid-sized company to last between 30 and 45 days. And during much of that time, the auditor is in-house. The average cost of an audit for these companies typically exceeds $100,000 plus back taxes. While you can't guarantee an auditor won't show up at your door, you can help ensure an audit goes smoothly. Make sure you make the auditor comfortable. At a minimum, an auditor should have ample space to do their job. Furthermore, it's wise to institute best practices throughout the year. For example, exemption certificates should be up to date and readily available. Invoices should prove the proper amount of sales tax has been collected and remitted on taxable sales, and records should show that use tax has been paid whenever due. Auditors will only linger where there's cause to do so. Time is money for them too. So our discussion today has been focused on items being shipped to customers out of state and the necessity of companies to meet the requirements for collecting sales tax. But what about the growing trend of items being received digitally by customers? How does the method of delivery affect those sales and the tax due? When it comes to collecting sales tax on a digital product like an ebook, a song, or your favorite Netflix show, how does one fit them into a one size fits all law that was created before digital products even existed? For most states, the problem lies in its non-physical attributes. Nearly all sales tax laws under the Streamlined Sales and Use Tax Agreement, SSUTA, call for collection on items of tangible personal property. But if an iTunes recording can't be held like a CD or an ebook read like a paperback novel, that definition falls short, causing the resulting aftermath to be confusing. For some states, digital products are disregarded as taxable altogether, while for yet more, terminology and perspectives are stretched to include new product developments into old definitions. For instance, some don't tax digital products because they're considered to be intangible, while others consider them tangible because they can be seen, if not held. And some states use existing laws as guidelines. If a product is taxable in its tangible form, it's taxable in its intangible form. And while the specifics may vary, for the most part, we can distinguish the states that tax digital products from those that don't. The general rule is as follows. States that generally tax the digital products. These include Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Hawaii, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine, 
Minnesota, Mississippi, Nebraska, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, Washington, Wisconsin, Wyoming, and Washington, D.C. States that generally don't tax digital products include California, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Illinois, Kansas, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Missouri, Nevada, New York, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, South Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia. And states that don't have a general sales tax include Alaska, Delaware, Montana, New Hampshire, and Oregon. Keep in mind that these are general sales tax protocols, and you should always double check with your state before making a taxation decision, as many exceptions exist and laws are always subject to change. And if you're unsure if something is taxable or not, I always recommend reaching out to the tax agency and getting in writing what their guidelines are. If you're ever audited and they say that something was taxable and you didn't tax it, if you can provide written documentation that shows you are following the guidelines given to you, then you would be okay. Um, But if you've just looked at something online or had a phone call, you wouldn't be able to prove your position. So again, if you don't know, reach out and ask for a letter um, for them to specify for you. Okay, last but not least... As long as the marketplace continues to develop, so too will our sales tax laws, and they will continue to evolve. So make sure you stay up to date with the latest requirements. And now that we had discussed sales tax issues for potential audits, I actually wanted to share some information on customer audits that I have experienced. Years ago, a new client had come to me to assist with their bookkeeping after they had been charged over $100,000 for an assessed unpaid sales tax. The auditor sat in their restaurant, counted total sales over a period of time, averaged out the purchases, and extrapolated how much tax should have been collected in a year. Because the business didn't have good bookkeeping records at the time of the audit, they couldn't disprove the assessment. The year in question had been in the downturn of the economy, the audit in a year with recovered sales. The business is still recovering from the financial hit that it took years ago. An event planning company had become a client of mine about 12 years ago. And when I first began working with them, I realized the prior bookkeeper had not been tracking the sales tax properly and their processes were revised to meet the standards required for the sales tax collection. About three years ago, they were given a notice of an audit due to one of their vendors having been audited first. Thankfully, all records for the business reflected sales had been tracked properly. Sales tax was collected and paid timely, and no balance was due. However, had that process not been changed, they would have had penalties for not having collected tax properly 
because the way that they were tracking and collecting was not correct. And a restaurant client of mine since 2008 was audited by California as someone in the tax agency had seen the federal income tax figures and realized the number reported for California sales tax for the same year was quite a bit less and felt they had found a business where a large recovery would be charged. Had they called and asked a simple question as to why, no audit would have been needed. The reason is my client operates locations in two states. Unfortunately, once an audit is opened, they must go through the whole process. The auditor requested three years of documents with five stores in two states and multiple bank accounts for 36 months to review. That's a lot of documentation. But after all was said and done, a no-change audit was filed stating everything had been paid correctly. Unfortunately for my client, he had to pay for the audit for our work and his CPA's work to actually gather and um, answer questions for the audit. Uh, But thankfully, again, no change audit was done and they didn't owe any tax. So what are the key takeaways from these cases? Number one, it's important to understand the taxability of products and services you sell. Number two, be sure to collect and remit the proper percentage of tax for each location in which you sell. And number three, having bookkeeping records that show sales, tax collected, dates of filings, and other information to prove accurate and timely payments is imperative. So we've discussed a lot today surrounding the ruling that states that the states do have the right to take sales from out-of-state companies, what businesses should be doing to make sure they're in compliance, the fact that states are using data mining and information from other states to track down those not complying with the regulations and dealing with an audit. Choose to protect your business by learning all your new sales tax requirements and applying the necessary steps to fulfill them. Failing to do so could result in costly fines that could have a serious impact on the financial success of your business. And remember, if you're unsure how to comply with the regulations, reach out to the state agencies for answers. They'll be glad to assist you in understanding all you must do to meet the new regulations. So thanks again for listening to BizHelp for You on the Voice America Internet Radio. I hope you found this topic interesting and that it provided you information to help you understand the implications of selling products to customers outside of your home state and the tax liabilities that may ensue. Listen in next week as we look into the important laws to know when hiring an employee. And please, let others know about our show. If you have any comments or questions, be sure to reach out to us at media at abmp.com. And you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And my website is www.abnp.com. Links can be found on my Voice America page. Remember to tune in each Tuesday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And if you can't join for the live show, you can find the episode saved on the business channel on www.voiceamerica.com. Until next time, have a great week. Thank you for listening to BizHelp for You. 
Please join your host, Candy Messer, again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a terrific week. 